My name's Caleb. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Gateway. We are continuing uh, with our series looking at the book of Judges today. John kicked us off last week, and um, today I, I have the joy of picking up. And actually, I think I get the best bit, because I get some of the best judges where the least stuff goes wrong. Uh, in future weeks, it's like it literally is downhill from here uh, in terms of these judges and what they get up to. Um, so I, I don't know how I managed to get this one. I think probably because I put my name on the paper first. But anyway, I'm, I'm happy about it. It. Um, but just in case you're kind of really new to faith or, or you're just kind of not sure where this all fits into the picture of history, um, we're in the Old Testament here. Uh, you can probably tell by the amount of violence that are in these stories. We are very definitely in the Old Testament. Uh, we're, we're kind of in that part of history where uh, God had chosen a people in Abraham. Uh, started out with one family, a man, Abraham, and his wife. God had chosen to work out his purposes through them. He wanted, them, he wanted to bless them so that they could be a blessing and a light to all nations. Uh, this uh, family had eventually become a tribe. You might remember the story of Joseph where uh, they are eventually led to Egypt out of necessity, out of lack of food. They end up in the land of Egypt where, again, they grow and they multiply uh, and end up eventually being slaves uh, to the Egyptians. But they cry out to God who sends uh, Moses uh, to help set them free, to lead them out of uh, this place of slavery into freedom and on a very long journey to eventually end up at this land, this promised land, this land that God had promised to his people. And uh, you might remember one of the famous stories is kind of Jericho where they come to this town and they conquer it or God basically does it. They just blow their trumpets and shout a bit. And, uh, and God gives them this victory and then they are on the, the cusp of moving into this promised land. And, uh, and God calls them in to come out to drive out the people who are there. And they're led by um, Joshua until his death. And then really, this is where Judges picks up the story. Like what happens um, in the book of Judges is there. They, they kind of come into the land, but they haven't. Judges chapter one, if you read it, is just failure after failure. Nine times it says that they failed to drive the people out of the land. Much of the problems, much of the violence, much of the war comes as a result of their failure to actually claim the land for their own. Now listen, if some of this makes you feel uncomfortable as you read through the book of Judges, you don't need to feel bad about that. I think you'd probably be a bit weird if you didn't feel a bit uncomfortable about sometimes the violence, sometimes the, the, what is said, what God says to people. Um, I, I had a whole section here where I was going to try and get into it, but I, don't, I just don't have time to get into it. So we'll, we will, John promised it last week, we will at some point try and address this whole thing around why, why does there appear to be so much kind of violence and war at this time in history. Um, we're not going to get into that today. But just to say, just to be honest up front, like I, I can't always fully resolve it. Like I, I don't, I don't, you know, when I read these passages, I don't think, oh, it's all wonderful and it all makes sense and it's all, you know, at ease with me. There is still that tension and I'm sure that is true for many of you as well. But we are looking at how we can address that collectively because I think there are some other, there is other things, there's a bigger picture to bear in mind as well as just kind of what you read uh, on these pages. Okay. So, uh, John talks us through the, the, the kind of main issues, the introduction to this series, kind of the first couple of chapters of Judges, and uh, really kind of the pattern that is going to be established here. And then what we get is this cycle uh, happening in these examples, and we're going to see certainly two of these are going to be really classic cycles of what happens um, in, throughout the book of Judges that will be the pattern for the rest of the book, really. So we're just going to read through it. I'm going to kind of comment as we 
go draw out one of what I think will be a kind of main point, um, and then I'll, uh, when we finish that, I'll come back at the end to rewind to, to one other key point I want to make um, this morning. So we are in Judges chapter 3, and uh, we start at verse 7. Okay, I, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation just because I like it. It's a bit simpler than the NIV, and I'm a really simple person. Um, so chapter 3, verse 7, says this, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. This is how it starts. This is how the cycle starts every single time. They forgot about the Lord. We'll come back to that at the very end. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. I'm not going to get into that, but John touched on that last week, what exactly that would have involved. And um, that was uncomfortable listening, wasn't it? I, I didn't know some of that stuff. Uh, Verse 8, then the Lord burned with anger against Israel. God gets angry at this point. Now, you might think, oh, is God meant to get angry? I think he's, he's pretty rightful to get angry at this point. He has literally just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They've been you know, in the most horrible conditions, and God is saying, I'm taking you to a new land where you will be free. I have delivered you, and they forget about him. Within a generation, they have forgotten about him. And so God gets angry. And, uh, and it says, he turned them over to the king, what's his name, of wherever. And the Israelites served king, what's his name, for eight years. I'm not even going to attempt those ones. Sorry, guys. There's some easy ones coming up later. Uh, verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. You see, even in God's anger, even though he allows them to be conquered, he is being kind to them. <laughs> it might seem a bit counterintuitive, but he is being kind to them. He's giving them an opportunity to turn to him, where he knows they will flourish if they are living in him, if they know him, if they serve him, if they worship him. He knows that this is for their best. And so even in his anger, he, he, he does this so that they turn back to him and they repent. This rescuer, his name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. Any of you who've done Alpha will remember that uh, on the kind of weekend where we look at the Holy Spirit, what's mentioned all the time when it comes to the Holy Spirit is that in the Old Testament, what we read is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, is given to specific people at specific times for a specific purpose. We now live in a new reality where the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all people. So we read it here in, you know, several times in the Old Testament, a specific person, the Spirit comes upon him for a purpose. We have access to the Holy Spirit now, all of us, all the time, which is just incredible, isn't it? We're living in new times. And he, uh, this is the guy, Othniel, became Israel's judge. He went to war against King What's-His-Name of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. Interesting, the Lord gave victory. He didn't win the war. God gave them victory. So there was peace in the land for 40 years, and then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. This is the classic pattern that we're going to get. And actually, Othniel gets a pretty good write-up. There's not a huge amount kind of said about him that is negative. But let me just, at this point, signpost you to Jesus, okay? It's always, whenever you read the Old Testament, it's always good to try and signpost people to Jesus. You have this pattern here in, in Judges where the people turn away from God, 
where God raises up a rescuer who comes and rescues them and there is peace in the land. Here it's for 40 years, it's for a generation. There is peace in the land. And then the rescuer dies, the judge dies. You'll see this happens with the next guy as well and time and time again. There is peace in the land for a time, for a season, only while that ruler is ruling. With Jesus, basically it points to Jesus because these people bring peace for a time and only for a time. They're able to do it while they are alive, and then they, but then they ultimately they die. The, the thing that is unique about Jesus is that when we cry out to him, he is the one who is still alive and reigning and ruling today. And so his peace goes on forever and ever. He accomplishes something that these people, these judges could never accomplish because they died and then the peace was over. Whereas Jesus rose again and lives eternally, is living now. And so his peace, the peace that he offers to us, is eternal. We have it forever. It is never at risk in the way that it was with these guys in the Old Testament. Next character, uh, verse 12, is Ehud. Okay, once again, here we go, (laughs) once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies, and they went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of palms. This time it's not just one king, it's not just one enemy. They've ganged up on Israel and they've taken over. They've even taken Jericho, their kind of prized possession, the place where God had given them that huge victory on the way into the promised land. It's now gone, it's been conquered. Uh, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years this time. Last time it was eight years that they were uh, ruled over. This time it's 18 years. Cycle carries on. Verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Interesting detail, right? Left-handed man. I mean, it's just, is that there for a reason? I think you're going to find out in a minute that this is probably the key. In fact, it's pretty much the only description we get of this guy, Ehud, something about him. He is left-handed. Interesting, right? So, if you are left-handed these days, you are in a minority, right? Wave your hand if you're left-handed in the room, okay? That's what, like three? Four people in the room? Apparently tech people have left-handedness. Um, <laughs> there's, there's proportionally more at the back. Um, le- left-handedness is a minority thing, right? And in a culture where minority, it was even harder to be in a minority, and your left hand was kind of associated with the dirty jobs of life, same, same as many cultures around the world today. Your right hand was a symbol of strength. It's the one that you fought with. It's the one that you did the good things with. It's the one that you ate with. It's, it's, it's often in the Old Testament, actually, right hand is it's always positive. Right hand is always positive in uh, the Old Testament. So God swears by his right hand. He has pleasure at his right hand. The chosen one sits at his right hand. Uh, Benjamin, in fact, he's from the, the irony here, which wouldn't have been missed on any Jew, is that Ehud is a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand, and he's left-handed. I think it's a little joke in there for the Israelites to enjoy. But um, 
But anyway, Benjamin means son of my right hand. So all of these things are positive references to, to, to right hands. If you are left-handed, you are different. You, it's, something, it's not something you would be proud of in this culture. It's, it's something unusual if it is left-handedness we're talking about here. Actually, a lot of the commentators, when they actually read this and study this properly, come to the conclusion that it might be something more than just left-handedness. The, the words kind of literally translated would say he was unable to use his right hand. It's entirely plausible that actually he had a disability. There was some kind of paralysis with his, he had some kind of issue with his right hand that meant he couldn't use it, and therefore he is using a left hand. Now, this is going to be a really key detail, okay, as we go through this story. He is unable to use his right hand. He is left-handed, potentially, definitely different, potentially disabled. Here's what happens with this guy. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon, of Moab. Tribute money, when you are ruled by somebody, you just have to pay taxes. And uh, it would seem that, uh, that Ehud actually used a lot of this tribute money to eat, as we will see in a minute. Uh, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long and strapped it to his right heart, thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. So remember, his right hand he isn't able to use. The only hand he can use for a sword is his left hand. It, most people, if you're right-handed, you strap a sword here so you can pull and use it. If you are left-handed, you strap it to this side, you pull it here to use it. Um, it, it most people, are, if they're going to be armed, are going to have it on this side. So it's entirely possible that any kinds of weapons check conducted on Ehud before he goes in to see the king, they would have checked this side and not this one, and he's hidden it under his clothing. So he's, he's gone in with a plan, like very definitely got a plan here, and, uh, and using his difference slash potentially disability to do something quite sneaky. Uh, he brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Again, you get these one-liners in the Old Testament of like things to be remembered by. Like, Edward was left-handed. King Eglon, he, he was very fat. Um, anyway, I, it's, I don't feel it's fatigued. I, I can't work out how that is relevant to anything. I mean, it makes the story more gory as we go through, you'll notice. But other than that, I have no idea why it is in there. Anyway, verse 18. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. The, it, it's like plan A failed. I don't know what plan A was, but it didn't work. He's on his way back, having done nothing um, to this king, even though he'd hidden a a sword on his thigh. But, verse 19, when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Uh, he's got a plan B. He's cooked something up on his way out. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. I mean, like, it's straight out of the playbook of spy novels, isn't it? Uh, how, can I, how can I get an audience with the king? I'm going to tell him I've got a secret message. Who, who doesn't love a secret message? And uh, the king Eglon falls for it. And uh, so the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. Big mistake, Eglon. You're going to regret that in a moment. Verse 20, Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. 
And Ehud said, he even like, he dresses this up even more. He says, I have a message from God for you. It's not just a secret message now. It's a message from God himself. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. You know the implication of that? His hand went in as well. If the whole handle goes in, it's horrible, isn't it? I've no idea why we get told that. Anyway, so Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. When When I read that before, okay, I used to think that meant like, you know, his gut spilled out. It doesn't. The literal translation is the dung came out. What it means, you know what that means, right? He got stabbed and it... Yeah, that's what happened there, okay? Don't need to say any more. But again, you think, why is that in there? That one is, I know the reason for that one. We're going to come to that in a moment, okay? Uh, Verse 23, um, then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this is getting horrendous. It's like, I don't know what this is, but he's he's, he's locked the doors so no one can come in and find this guy. The doors are already closed. He just locks them. And, uh, and then he d- escapes down the toilet, um, and he's got plenty of time to run away. After Ehud had gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. Why did they think that? What could they smell? His bowels had emptied on the floor, and Ehud has been climbing down the latrine. There are bad smells coming under that door. And so they go, okay, it's the king. We can't go in. We've got to leave him until he's finished his business, and then we can go in. What does this accomplish? This means Ehud has time to escape before they realize he's dead. I mean, you just couldn't make this stuff up, could you? Uh, next uh, little bit. When the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. When they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. Uh, when, while the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone isles on his way uh, to Sarah. Uh, when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the river Jordan, of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years this time. Last time it was 40, this time. It's 80. I mean, what a story this is, right? What an incredible story. What an an unexpected leader. God using unusual methods. Nobody saw this coming. He was not the kind of guy you would expect God to use in this kind of way. I don't know if any of you watched the tennis last night. Anybody watched the tennis last night? Emma Raducanu, what a performance that was. I mean, that was unexpected, right? She, uh, uh, who would have thought an 18-year-old who was playing in a second major, gone through qualifiers and won the US Open without dropping a single set along the way? It is just truly incredible. Talk about an unexpected story. Well, this, I would suggest, is right up there with that kind of feat. Like, this is a guy who, who it's, for me, the, the, the most powerful thing about this story, uh, what I love about it is that 
God doesn't just use this guy, Ehud, be kind of in spite of his left-handedness, his, his difference slash his disability. It's not that God just uses him in spite of that. God actually uses him and that bit of him. God uses his weakness. God uses his difference, uses his disability to bring about his purposes. A right-handed man could not have done that, right? This guy, is, it, a lot of the commentators suggest that you know, if, if he was disabled, if there was clearly something visibly wrong with his right hand, they might not have even checked him for weapons because they would just never have expected him to be able to do that kind of thing with his, with his only hand. And, uh, and so I just love it. I love that that's what God does, right? Isn't that true today? God uses, we, we know from uh, 1 Corinthians, um, where are we? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 28 says instead god chose the, the world ch- sorry god chose the world the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful this is how god works in his upside down kingdom kind of way right he chooses to use foolish things he uses people like ehud who everyone else probably wrote off to accomplish his purposes i reckon he got the job that no one else wanted, right? He had to take a tribute to the king. Uh, nobody wanted to do that, right? You'd put yourself in jeopardy, and yet God uses him in an incredible way to bring freedom to his people. I love that that's what God does. We read in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12, uh, Paul is talking about this, this weakness, this thorn in his flesh, this thorn in his side that he's got. And God says, you know what, Paul? He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Isn't that amazing about God? Sometimes we try so hard to keep it all together, to prove that we can do things, to, to, to get it all right, to work everything out, to, to understand everything. And yet God is saying, actually, I work better when you know that you're weak. I work better when you acknowledge your weakness and, and I can work through that weakness. That's how God operates still today with you and with me. Why don't you turn to the person next to you? and say, God can use me. Why don't you turn and say that to somebody? Why don't you turn to your second favorite person on the other side and say, God can even use you. We joke about it, but it's true, isn't it? Like, God can use anyone. If, if, he can, if he chooses to use Ehud here, if he says to Paul, actually, my power is made perfect in weakness. Like, I, w- I operate better when you acknowledge your weakness, Paul, when you still have visible weaknesses. Uh, he can use anyone, can't he? Isn't, that's good news for you and me, isn't it? Really good news. Uh, verse 31, the final one, um, the final judge uh, that we're looking at today. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's literally it. <laughs> That's all there is about this guy. Like, <laughs> an ox goad is a stick that you prod oxen with to make them go where you want them to go, right? It's a, it's a stick with a pointy end. And, uh, I mean, come on, if, if somebody had to write up your life with one sentence, I bet it would not be as cool as this guy's, right? <laughs> not only that, but his name rhymes with jam jar. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Right? When I was at school, my friends, I don't know if this was just a thing that my friends did, used to like try and make up silly rhymes about one another. Nobody could ever get anything to rhyme with Caleb. 
apart from gay club. <laughs> Which wasn't particularly flattering. If anyone can rhyme something with Caleb that's like flattering, please let me know. I would love that would that would heal a hurt from school life. His name rhymes with Jamja, and his his life write-up is he once killed six hundred Philistines with a stick. There you go. Uh, so that that's who he is. That's uh, that's our three characters today. Uh, so I want to just rewind really. I want to pick up one. Um, one theme that is right at the beginning of that passage uh, that we're going to kind of finish with by looking at today. So uh, we're going back to Judges um, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, sorry. And, uh, and this is actually something that Tim Keller picks up on, which I just think is really key for us today. The problem here is diagnosed. The problem with God's people, right at the heart of the problem that gets them in so much trouble throughout the book of Judges. We read it here. It says, they forgot about the Lord their God. It's just a little throwaway line. They forgot about the Lord their God. Now, obviously, the people haven't literally forgotten about God. The reason they are living in this land is because God has rescued them. Like, they're they're still, they're still, they're hedging their bets still even a lot of the time. They're worshiping God, but also mixing in the kind of worship of, uh, of the other local people's gods as well. That's not what is going on here. Tim Keller actually calls this, it's not like normal forgetting. The information has left your brain. So this is about heart forgetfulness. It's when we forget in our hearts what, who God is and what he's done. I, I would describe it like this. I would say, uh, to, say that is, to say that the Israelites forgot about God is to say that what they knew about God no longer influenced the way they lived their lives. Let me read that again. This is what heart forgetfulness is. To say that the Israelites forgot about God is to say that what they knew about God no longer influenced the way they lived their lives. There were other things that came in, other factors that determined the decisions they made in life. They they still had that knowledge. They still knew who God was. They still knew what he wanted of them. And yet, they forgot about him. They did other things. They turned away from him. Do you think this might be an issue today? Yeah? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you think this might be an issue today? (laughs) Maybe a better way of asking that question is, um, is there a single bigger issue in Christian discipleship today than this? Like, genuinely, isn't this the root of all of our problems, pretty much, that we forget about God. It's not that we've forgotten about who he is. It's not that we have lost that knowledge about God and who he is and what he wants from us. No, it's the fact that what we know about God no longer influences the way that we live our lives, right? This is true of all of us. Judges has diagnosed the problem here in these ancient Israelites. I think the author of Judges has diagnosed most of our problems today in that one line, right? We've forgotten about God. How do we, well, what do we do about this? Here's the biggest challenge with it, I think. It's easier to spot it in other people than it is ourselves, right? You know this to be true, right? You know that when you see somebody who's a Christian making poor relationship decisions, you you think, oh, like I know where this is going. I know where this is headed. I can see the direction that person is going to go and it's not towards God, right? You can see it when in somebody else, when you see that they're allowing other priorities to, to draw them away from participating in church life, being amongst other believers, being encouraged, one anothering, you can see that in other people and you can think, 
I know where that's headed. It doesn't look good, right? You can see it in other people when somebody kind of says to you, oh, I've actually stopped reading my Bible as regularly these days because I used to do it every day and then I stopped and I didn't really notice much difference. You think, oh, I'm wincing. I know where this is going, right? You know where this is headed. This person is forgetting about God, not head knowledge, heart forgetfulness. You see it in other people when you can spot just something feels a bit wrong, the way they're accumulating possessions and wealth and they're not relying on God anymore day to day for him to provide, right? You get worried and you think, oh, I think I know which direction this is going. I think this looks like heart forgetfulness. So easy to see it in other people, right? Harder to see it in ourselves. But we need to be the kind of people, I've got two things I want to finish with that we can be doing, I think, to make sure that we are not a heart forgetful people. I don't know if heart-remembering people really sounds very good, but we want to be people who remember God in all things, right? The first thing I think is a preventative thing that we can do. What I would say is when we're doing the basic stuff of, you know, the disciplines, the, the things that we know are good for us and lead us to God who transforms us, right? These things have no power in themselves. Reading the Bible and prayer in themselves do not have power, but they lead us to a a powerful God, right? But doing these things, turning up to prayer meetings to pray, praying with friends, sharing communion together, worshiping, these basic activities that we know lead us into the presence of God, one of the ways we can stay heart-remembering people and not become heart-forgetful people is by doing these things in a fully engaged way, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just going through the motions, but engaging. It's it's a discipline even to do that, isn't it? It's so easy, don't know about you, been reading through the New Testament, haven't we? And it's so easy to open the the app on a a morning, read it through, you get a little tick in the box. You know, talk about a tick box exercise, even a little tick in the box on the app says, I've read my Bible, right, on to the next thing, what do I do? It's so easy to just go through the motions, isn't it? At the moment, it's harder, you know, in terms of worship, because it's all new to us singing again. It's, it's much easier to kind of engage in that on a, on a heart, soul, mind, strength level. But I want to suggest that one of the things we can do to, to prevent heart forgetfulness is engage with these basic practices, but on a, on a meaningful, engaged level, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pause before you do them. Invite God to move in the midst of them. Let's not just be tick box people who go through the motions. And the second thing, there's more of a kind of diagnosis rather than a prevention thing, is like, ask God, (laughs) right? Let's be people who ask God, God, are there any ways that I'm in danger of becoming heart forgetful here? Are there any ways that I am in danger of just allowing other things to become a priority in my life? My decision-making is becoming affected by other things than, than you and who you are and what you want for me, God. Like, are there some other things? Tim Keller would go straight for it and call these things idols. <laughs> um, are, are there any other things that have become, maybe even good things, but they're in danger of becoming ultimate things? It is good for us to stop and to ask God and say, God, are there some ways that I'm becoming heart forgetful? Now, I I, I want us to, we're going to do something corporately around this in a moment, but I want to give you the good news first. (laughs) The cycle that you read in Judges, the the people do evil, they heart forget, then they call on God and he rescues them, right? It's, It's dead simple, but it's good news. 
God's the same today. He still rescues, right? We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to go and fight for anything. He's already done it. All we have to do is repent. We have to turn to him. Say, God, I'm sorry I've done that. I'm turning back to you. And he will always come and meet us. And, uh, and we will be one with him. Do we want to stand? And uh, we're just going to respond. Uh, musicians, do you want to come up? I want to just leave a, a moment or two of quiet. And we're going to ask God together collectively for him by his spirit to remind us, to show us, to highlight things in our lives that are in danger of, of, of just making us become heart forgetful about God, who he is and what he wants of us. So we say, come Holy Spirit, come and speak to us now. God, we, we don't want to be hiding any area of our lives away from you. We don't want to put our defenses up in this moment. We don't want to put walls up and say, no, God, we think we're good. <laughs> we can't deal with this uncomfort. We want to say, God, no, we, we are clay in your hands. We want you to shape and mold us. So, God, if there is anything that you want to just put your finger on in our lives today that is in danger of usurping you in our lives, that is in danger of nudging you off top spot in our lives. God, just point it out to us in your grace, in your mercy, your kindness. Would you convict us? Let's just wait on him. Just, I genuinely believe the Holy Spirit is going to point stuff out to many of us in this moment, probably myself included. Just come, Holy Spirit. Well, there you go. Hear that word, technology. Maybe that's for some people here today. Thank you, God. I'm totally open to that if other people want to just sense there's something, either for them or for other people, that God's highlighting. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I want to put the words up. Uh, Mark, could you just put some words up on the screen? There's a prayer here that I would love us to just pray together. It's just something I, I kind of wrote in advance of today. Just read these words, and if, if you want to pray these words with me, then uh, you know, I, I want to read them first in your head, check you're okay with reading them, and then we'll read them together. Okay, if you're happy, if you, if you want to pray this prayer, let's pray together. Father God, I'm sorry that I've forgotten you. I'm sorry that I've allowed other priorities to pull me away from you. I'm sorry that my decisions are shaped by things other than what you want from me. I repent of my heart forgetfulness and I turn to you. Rescue me. Forgive me. Help me to remember you in all things. I want to put you first in my life. Amen. Amen. I'm sure many of us have prayed that prayer today. If you 
if maybe that's the first time thing for you, you don't really, you know, you're kind of new to this whole thing about Jesus and you have read those words and that's kind of spoken to you, I'd love to chat to you at the end today. Just come and have a chat with me. But um, we're going to respond. I'm sure the kids will be joining us uh, in a moment. We're going to continue to sing. Uh, I just, just in the first part of worship, I just had a picture, just want to share. Um, kind of, uh, yeah, as, as we respond to God, as we worship. Uh, my, my sense was that some of you almost feel like your heart's become a bit hardened over the last 18 months, just without the, the kind of thing of coming and worshiping regularly um, together. You feel like your heart's kind of grown a bit hard, grown a bit cold. And, um, and God wanted to just kind of highlight that that can be dealt with in a moment as he encounters us, as he draws near, that God can break, almost like the picture was like of an egg, <laughs> you know, like an eggshell. It looks the same as a rock does an egg but it's much easier to break. And uh, my sense was that as we worship now, in this time of worship we've got left together, that, that, that God wants to soften some hard hearts. He wants to break through. He wants to meet you. He's going to draw near as we worship. This isn't just a one-way thing of us, you know, kind of worshiping God. He's going to draw near to us. He's going to worship us. So let's, let's worship. He's going to meet with us.